Yes, hello. It's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast, the ever-growing, ever-expanding, ever-accelerating, as if to some final destination, a teleological omega point, Ultra Culture Podcast. So, we have been very busy. We've been back to putting out weekly episodes. We just completed our Introduction to Magic course. Thank you very much to all the students who came. We had a great, great turnout. A completely new theory of magic was unveiled to the world. Group ritual was done in virtual reality. Uh, It was an amazing, amazing time and a completely new level for the school. We're bringing in all this kind of, you know, cutting edge technology and really trying to merge the best distillation possible of the spiritual spiritual traditions of the past and present with the most advanced technology of the future. We're working on things like artificial intelligence, neurofeedback, all kinds of great stuff. So check it out. The course is now closed, but you might get another chance at some point in the future if we do it again. But one way or another, keep your ears open and for for new courses to come because we're we're getting into a, a a groove and we're hitting our stride here so there are definitely going to be more courses to come you can always suggest topics you would like covered or formats you would like or things you would like in courses over email one way or another we are having lots of fun and i wanted to take this moment we're still kind of decamping from kind of winding down from from the course packing, packing everything up and cleaning up and that type of thing. So I wanted to take this time to kind of pause and reflect. The main thing that I wanted to talk about is the last book I did, John D and the empire of angels, which I just realized has now been out for four years, which is ridiculous. Um, I don't know where that time went. Or actually, rather, I do know where that time went. It went into the apocalypse. So the John D. book is a book about the apocalypse, and then we all kind of collectively lived it. So I think that this is a book that is going to not only read very different uh, now as opposed to 2018 when it came out, but is, is never going to be untimely. It's about the deepest, most pressing and most ongoing themes of Western culture, which unfortunately I believe were doomed to play out again and again and again in perpetuity, particularly the idea of revelation, the apocalypse, the final conflagration in which the the good people are sorted out from the bad people and redeemed and that type of thing. So we live in an apocalyptic, uh, an apocalyptically hardwired culture. And what better example of that could there be then the last few years and even now what's going on in Russia directly relates to things in the book, for instance. So yeah, I think it's definitely time to begin reassessing the book. I'm looking back over this book now after having not looked at it since it came out, essentially, I spent four years writing it nonstop. Uh, I spent those four years doing literally nothing but spending every waking hour of every day immersed in not just the world of, of John D, the Renaissance alchemist, but also the entirety of the Western magical tradition, the entirety of European history, the, um, the, esch- the eschatological and apocalyptic currents within not only British history, but definitely within American history and the history of the Middle East. And 
it was a pretty crazy time and I kind of want to touch on what that time was like a little bit, but um, looking back on it now, I'm very happy with it. I am happy to be judged by this book at the pearly gates if need be. It's the best thing I've, I've done in writing. And so if you haven't got a copy of it yet, it will never go out of fashion. I talked to the publisher recently. It's still selling. It's people are still buying it in droves. It's still, and it's still in hardback. They wanted to do a paperback uh, apparently, but they don't want to do that yet because it's still selling so well in hardback. Um, you may remember if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time that I told everyone, you know, to jump on the first edition as soon as it came out. That first edition sold out within a week. It went through four printings in the first month. I don't know what printing it's on now, but it's continuing to sell. So uh, now's a better time than ever to grab that book and give it a read. But flipping through this book again, I could not help also but feel a kind of momentous sense of sadness and and loss, um, not only because of the kind of apocalyptic tone of the book, but just looking back to all the years I spent writing it in the in the before times, the the before COVID times. I started writing it in 2015 in Berkeley, uh, California, and it was just a different time. I was a different person. Um, I was. I think 35 instead of 40, I was in a relationship. I was, um, it was, it was, I, it was the beginning of yet another personal apocalypse (laughs) as it went forward. So yeah, it's, it's interesting looking back at that. The early days spent writing that book were, were again, up in Berkeley, going through the stacks at UC Berkeley, going through all the, the John D. material, which was particularly poignant because Berkeley is right next to Point Reyes, California, which is where Sir Walter Raleigh, the British explorer, landed in America for the first time. It was actually originally going to be called, the Bay Area was going to be named New England, Nova Albion, uh, but they they ditched that and later recycled the name for the East Coast of America. But England was actually going to colonize America on the West Coast first. It just proved too expensive to get there. But those early days spent spent writing the book were, you know, I spent a lot of time at Point Reyes imagining Sir Walter Raleigh coming to the U.S. He was sent by John D to uh, basically John Dee was the cartographer that came up with the idea of the British empire and initiated the, the colonization. And obviously it was later on in the writing of the book or actually right as I was completing the book that the Trump inauguration or the Trump election happened and Brexit happened as the one, two punch. And so it was just this momentous moment of feeling like everything was just collapsing all around me as I was spending all of this time writing about the apocalypse. I also got, I also ended up getting sucked into later on in the process. I was, as I was writing consulting for Google's artists and machine intelligence program on ethics around artificial intelligence. So this is possibly one of the most it was certainly one of the most intense periods of my life where I was spending all of my time writing about 
uh, Christian apocalypticism, and then essentially my break from that was considering the apocalyptic implications of artificial technology, the collapse of human society into essentially wetware for um, machine intelligences. That was a really crazy time. Um, I And so, yeah, it's hard not to look back on that with, I, I don't know if nostalgia is necessarily the word, but I think my brain is still healing from that time period. Uh, I, I think a sense of profound sadness, and I, but I, I think, luckily, I think the book is a lot better for it. So I wanted to kind of um, kick off another discussion of the book by reading another section out of it. And this is one I want to, again, put out into the public. Um, I began writing about magic when I was 17. Uh, I had been into it already, but I was published writing about magic when I was 17 or 18, maybe 19. I can't remember. Uh, the first thing I ever published was a eulogy for, for William Burroughs, so I suppose that counts. But in my early days, I very much had a very colorful idea of it, a comic booky idea of it. My ideas about magic when I was first getting into it, just like everyone, I think, was this idea that, oh, this is a, something new. It's a new level of consciousness. I'm like, you know, what? it would be so awesome if everybody could, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out, and, or, or you know, rather be into this stuff too. This idea that magic was, was spreading, which it was at the time, it was a very popular idea um, in the late 90s. This idea that everyone was going to kind of wake up through magic. I think this is a very common idea for people who first get into it, or there's going to be some type of spiritual revolution, that type of thing. And and I spent a lot of time, a lot of time becoming very, very disillusioned with that, um, essentially throughout my 20s and just feeling that's not going to happen. Um, that's a childish idea. Everyone is, um, you know, it's just life is much more complicated than that. There's bills to pay, et cetera, et cetera. And just going through a long, long, long disillusioning period. But during that time, looking back on it, I feel that I was definitely, uh, I guess the best way to put it is growing into the, <laughs> you know, growing into being able to handle the immensity of what I had set in motion. And I, I think looking back, I had no idea and, and no, by any, by anyone's measure, like no right <laughs> probably to be doing something as grandiose as committing my life to spreading the idea of magic or announcing, you know, referring to myself as a magician in public, which is a inherently, you know, just goofball thing to do. Um, but I, I don't think I had any idea the momentity of what I had the, the immensity of what I had put into motion. And so it took me probably 10, 10 years, 10 or 11 years, certainly after the release of Generation Hex, my first book, to just grow into even beginning to understand what that meant. And the output of that entire process is, is John Dee and the Empire of Angels. It's my uh, doctoral dissertation on magic, if you will, if, if Generation Hex is kind of like an undergraduate essay. Um, uh, the John D. book is the doctoral dissertation on exactly what magic is, what it is historically, the role that it's played in the world, um, what is real about it scientifically, and what is definitely not real, 
uh, grappling with the geopolitical ramifications, grappling with um, how to disentangle it from superstition. And that is work that just um, had to be done on such a deeper level than, you know, how to do sigils, bro. And so, yeah, I think that however, in the end, what I came up with in terms of the the historical significance and importance of magic at the highest level was actually much more profound and, and, and disturbing in a way than anything that I had originally thought about, about what it was, or my, my own ideas about what magic was. So, but that said, in addition to that, in addition to this process of myself kind of trying to mature into uh, an adult proponent of this stuff rather than a, what I had originally portrayed myself as when I was 21 as this kind of like, you know, anarchist, um, rabble rouser of throwing, you know, my, my original presentation of myself was as this person throwing out this inherently dangerous concept of magic into the world just to fuck shit up, man. And that is certainly no longer how I feel about it. But I, I guess to my own surprise, I have ended up continuing to do this now at 40, what I was setting in motion at 20. And so I've had a lot of time to sit with the material and also I think in addition to that, I've had the privilege to have a spectator side seat or a, you know, a ringside seat rather for the quote unquote magical revolution to actually happen. What I was talking about in generation hex, this idea that it was going to become part of youth culture, that it was going to become ubiquitous in the culture. That was not true in the slightest at the time that I wrote that book. Uh, and it, yet the prediction, the prediction came true or the spell worked that became the case, you know, it is now, you know, certainly witchcraft is, is utterly ubiquitous within youth culture beyond actually what I thought was going to happen. Uh, and the ideas of magical culture, the ideas of magical thinking and so forth have so permeated the culture that they don't know political boundaries. It's among the left and the right. It's everywhere. We are, you know, essentially a, 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 a magical culture now. Uh, and I don't know if that's good or not, but it certainly happened. But I've been privileged to be able to have a ringside seat watching it happen. And one of the things that I really wanted to do is if Generation Hex was this kind of hand grenade uh, thrown into a crowd, uh, I wanted to follow on that initial, you know, three chord volley of, of uh, aggressiveness and abrasiveness with something deeper and specifically something more theologically complex. And having spent now so long with the various spiritual and magical traditions of the world in a real way, uh, you know, my education in spirituality really became, really began after that book came out uh, going around the world and learning about Vedanta and Buddhism and, and all these different things. Um, beyond just my, my initial kind of thesis. One of the things that I really began to realize is, is how, um, simplistic Western magical thinking is in many ways, at least at the surface, and that it is just not theologically mature. And so I wanted to, out of this process of maturing that I had gone through, give back something 
a more mature version of the of the tradition itself. And so, while the book John Dee and the Empire of Angels is theoretically about John Dee, what it really is, is a, essentially, it is, what it really is, is an encapsulation, not only of the entire Western magical tradition over the last thousand years, but a way of stating a much more theologically clear and precise um, version of it. A big part of that, quite honestly, was not removing but sidelining Aleister Crowley from the conversation. Um, he there's a lot of ink um, at uh, there's a lot of ink um, dedicated to Crowley in this book. Also, Jack Parsons, but Crowley's personality is so kind of eclipsing of so much of the tradition that it's quite important to get away from him, not to completely just discard him because he's so important to the whole thing, but put him in proper context. And the proper context is that he was reacting to something earlier. He was kind of proposing really what Crowley was doing, which I think some of his students like Kenneth Grant would probably readily agree with, was proposing an inversion of the Western magical tradition, um, the upside down cross version, if you will, rather than the tradition itself. And it's really hard to see that clearly unless you've spent a lot of time with the material. It's very hard to understand exactly how he did that why he did it and what the ramifications of that were of his proposal of a um what he called a new aeon which was which is really an in an inversion of the prior theological assumptions of of of, of christianity so putting that in context was really important and showing the broader context of what the, the tradition has been using john d as the exemplar which he really is kind of the high watermark of the tradition was, I think, incredibly important for presenting Western magic as something that is not only worthwhile as a pursuit, as an adult intellectual pursuit that, you know, uh, rational and uh, non-off-the-wall adults, mature, rational, mature adults could, I hope, stand by and say that it is something that they are seriously engaged in and that it is, it is a serious personal and academic pursuit in the same way that at least, you know, within, let's say, coastal America, nobody bats an eye if you say that you're a Buddhist. I mean, just nobody bats an eye. It's not, uh, it's not considered dumb. Whereas magic is very different. If you say that you're into magic, you are immediately still, unfortunately, considered um, uh, uh, an unintelligent person and, and possibly a social pariah and certainly a gullible person. And even though there've been many advances in that regard. And so what I really wanted to do is just continue the work that I set out to do 20 years ago, which is show that it is a, not just a serious pursuit, but it, that it can be put on par with any other serious spiritual tradition in the world, whether that's again, Buddhism, Vedanta, uh, whatever it happens to be. And to do that, I really, really had to dig back and go to source code, go prior to Crowley. Um, and what I discovered was that, that not only is this the case, but that every mover and shaker in a real way in Western 
history has been engaged in Western esotericism in some way, either tangentially or completely directly. And that was actually very shocking for me. And, and it's always amazing to feel yourself a social pariah and somebody who has um, posited a theory that the world finds unacceptable, uh, who I always felt, I felt for 10 years after Generation Hex came out, that I was, had made myself into a clown and that I had to walk around essentially in full clown makeup for the rest of my life because my, my Google search trail showed me as being this clownish person in the minds of the public that I have been involved in magic and the occult. That was a move that I made at 20 or 21 that seemed very brave at the time, but then I, you know, it was rather inconvenient as time went on. Um, but magic, in, in many senses, I bound myself to magic in that way. And so my own processing of that was my ability to process that for the, tr for the tradition as well. And so to go from that feeling to discovering that, you know, not only is this not an aberration, but it is the central dynamo, the central mover of Western history was uh, quite a head shift. And it is one that I don't think people have fully caught up with from the book. I think people have read the book by now. They've probably focused on the the actual angelic sessions with John Dee or some of the sessions with the Aethers with Crowley later in the book and kind of the more Hollywood aspects of it. But I want to underline this, that the core message of that book is the rehabilitation of the Western esoteric tradition. It is the adult's clearly stated, academically precise, scientifically precise um, distillation of the tradition. It is not something that I invented. It is something that I spent four years doing the deep, deep academic work in university libraries to put together. So it is the historical, historically accurate version of what magic actually is, rather than what people would like it to be, um, rather than a Hollywood version, or even rather than um, quite frankly, Alistair Crowley's hijacking of magic into his own personality cult. Um, Crowley is a great writer. He's one of the best writers ever on magic. There's a lot to learn from him, but I don't think anyone can deny that at the, at the, at best, at best, he hijacked it and made it a vehicle for his own, um, celebrity, right? And, and, you know, personality and, and, uh, in all of its, all of its highs and lows. So, with that in mind, I wanted to read this section from the book, which is, I think, the clearest distillation of what her magic, her, what her magic, her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth I, what hermetic magic is historically, and this is a definition of of it and an explanation of it that I stand by that I would undergo academic review on, that I would, you know, this is the thesis I would defend. And most importantly, this is a thesis that puts Western magic on equal par with other spiritual traditions historically, uh, develops it, begins to develop the theology more. I mean, let's face it, there is really nothing in certainly the modern neo-pagan or magical canon that can hold a can that can hold a candle theologically to something like saint thomas of aquinas or augustine or or you know the madhyamika tradition of of buddhist scriptural in interpretation anything like this the theology is just undeveloped and immature and so this is a much more developed theological contribution to what it actually is so 
That's my way of saying this is a really awesome chapter from the book. You will really enjoy it. The book is still on sale on Amazon. Hopefully they still have copies in stock, but uh, if not, they are always coming in stock. Grab yours. Um, and I look forward to this book of anything that I've done in my life. I'm confident that this book will outlive me by a long time. And it is probably the one thing that I've done that I will immediately, um, I'm happy to be judged by uh, on any level. All right. So with that said, this is the second chapter from the book, All as Study of All. The shockwaves felt from the Protestant Reformation and Henry VIII's split from Rome had created an apocalyptic climate in Europe. The Protestantism was only one of the belief structures challenging or running parallel to Catholicism. The others were Hermeticism, Neoplatonism, and Operative Magic, three distinct yet intertwining schools of thought that formed the literate elite's direct quest for divine knowledge beyond the rote teachings of the Church. Each of these disciplines was a crucial influence on the Renaissance, and together they made up the matrix of assumptions that Dee would inherit from his mentors and that would be fulfilled by his own work. Hermeticism itself was a long-standing school of philosophy drawn from the study of the Corpus Hermeticum, the magical texts attributed to the Egyptian priest, king, and philosopher Hermes Trismegistus, believed to be a contemporary and spiritual equal of Moses, which thus formed a source of wisdom on par with the Old Testament itself. Even previous Christian intellectual giants, like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, considered Hermes Trismegistus a pagan prophet and forerunner of Christianity. Trismegistus was almost certainly not a real individual, but a mythological figure that many anonymously ascribe their works to. Primary among these texts is the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, a book first appearing in Arabic sometime between the 6th and 8th centuries, and translated into Latin in the 12th, which contains the root precepts of the entire genre. Hermeticism itself emerged parallel to Christianity and Gnosticism, and evolved over the first millennium. Hermetic texts dating to the 3rd or 4th century were uncovered in the Nag Hammadi codices. During the 15th century, the Florentine philosopher Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, a courtier of the Medicis, synthesized the Hermetic texts with the Hebrew Kabbalah brought to Spain by Sephardic Jews. Beginning in the 14th century, Spain's Jewish community became subject to pogroms, with Jews killed, forced to convert, subsequently hunted as heretics by the Spanish Inquisition for having converted, and finally expelled from the country, partly out of the belief that forcing the Jews to fully convert was necessary to bring about the Second Coming, even that their failure to do so had provoked God's wrath and caused Spain's many misfortunes, like the Black Death. This wide-scale persecution of the Jews in Spain was in many ways the model for the Holocaust, Many evangelical Christians used similar logic in the 20th century to rationalize the German genocide of Jews and abstain from pushing for American intervention. Della Mirandola believed that both sources, the Hermetic texts and the Hebrew Kabbalah, helped validate and elucidate Christianity, and thereby created what came to be known as Christian Kabbalah, also incorporating the earlier work of Raymond Lull, 
Another Medici courtier, Marsilio Ficino, introduced Plato into the mix, whose works had been freshly brought to the Italian city-states by the Byzantine scholars who had fled the sack of Constantinople. Together the two men founded a school of thought now known as Renaissance Neoplatonism, and used their new philosophical tools to quest for the Prisca Theologia, the original, pristine religion delivered to mankind by God in antiquity, and subsequently lost in the ravages of history. These intellectual streams formed a new, potent revival of Gnostic ideas that would later be converted into a vast philosophy and working system of operative magic by Trithemius and Cornelius Agrippa. While Hermeticism and Renaissance Neoplatonism were theoretical methods of categorizing the universe as a series of nested essences proceeding from God, Operative Magic aimed to apply this knowledge experimentally and uncover a working methodology for interacting with and manipulating the universe. This politically perilous approach was exemplified by Agrippa, whose three books of occult philosophy combines the framework of Hermeticism and Renaissance Neoplatonism with the raw techniques of European folk magic and the grimoires of spirit conjuration that had been floating around the European underground over the preceding centuries. The application of the Christian Kabbalah, with its incorporation of pseudo-Dionysius and heavy reliance on angels, was thought by advocates of the direct approach to be the key to making operative magic safe and free of demonic influence. As no less than Sir Walter Raleigh once remarked, the art of magic is the art of worshipping God. During the medieval era, Western civilization had ordered the universe into the great chain of being and lamented that man dwelt in a fallen, sublunary state beneath God and his angels. By the Renaissance, thanks to the influence of humanism, daring intellectuals began seeking to reverse this state and reclimb the chain back to God. Thus, they hoped they would uncover the Prisca Theologia and might learn the original language with which God created the world and by which Adam conferred with the angels. They would thereby become men's adeptus, enlightened adepts able to reshape the world with the powers of God himself and reverse the fallen state of the world to its original perfection. Hermeticism, Renaissance Neoplatonism, and operative magic became the methodology by which to attempt this great work. By the 16th century, interest in Hermeticism and Neoplatonism was growing among the European intellectual elite. And while Hermetic texts had long been jealously guarded and carefully written in code, the printing press was undoing much of that secrecy, bringing alarming new ideas to receptive minds. Even the arch-iconoclast Martin Luther would see rhetorical importance in the ideas of Hermeticism and alchemy, believing that they offered valuable metaphors about the purification of the soul and the coming day of judgment. In the centuries to come, these ideas would take wider root in the form of Rosicrucianism and speculative Freemasonry. And while operative magic itself would fall out of favor as a serious pursuit, its fundamental approach, that nature can be procedurally manipulated and altered, would evolve into modern science. As late as the 18th century, even Isaac Newton was an avid student of the Hermetica, alchemy, Rosicrucianism, and Christian eschatology. The economist John Maynard Keynes famously described Newton as the last of the magicians, the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians. If the Reformation sought to remove the Catholic Church as a mediator between the individual and God, 
then Hermeticism, Neoplatonism, and Operative Magic sought to go one further and provide models and techniques to give individuals a direct connection to the source of Scripture. This idea that with the right techniques, mankind could seek not just to talk to God, but find that God talks back, outside of institutional or scriptural bounds, and that this process could be put on an empirical basis, was politically dangerous. While previous mystics, like Hildegard of Bingen and St. Teresa of Avila, had recorded direct visionary experiences of God, Christ, and the angels themselves, even in the case of Hildegard of Bingen, recording a divine alphabet and language she titled Lingua Ignota that looks and sounds remarkably like Dee's angelic language, these experiences were confined to the tightly regimented and controlled inner world of the Catholic holy orders. To open these teachings to the world was unthinkable. Yet for the Hermeticist, God existed not just as a far-off entity, but, much as Raymond Lull perceived in his vision at Majorca, was reflected in the divine order of the manifest universe itself. If God had created man, nature, and scripture in his image, then deep study of these would reveal the creator, and provide the keys not just of understanding the pattern by which he created existence, but even of becoming like him. To use a modern metaphor, if the universe is a computer, with its own finely ordered operating system, file structure, and languages, Hermeticism and Neoplatonism sought to understand the workings of the computer, while operative magic sought to program it. In this light, Dee's polymathic quest to understand and master so many disparate branches of knowledge no longer seems scattershot, but makes sense as a momentous unity, a superscience. Without understanding this, or the overall assumptions of the hermetic discourse within which Dee labored, his work is incomprehensible. Broadly speaking, these assumptions are 1. All extant knowledge, scientific, scriptural, and stemming from the observation of nature, is comprehensible as a unified whole and a reflection of the mind of God itself. 2. The universe is holographic, as above, so below. As the universe is a holism, study of representative subsets of the universe can reveal the totality. Likewise, Manipulation of representative subsets of the universe can manipulate the totality. This is the primary assumption of operative magic. 3. The eschaton, or second coming of Christ, the final reversal of mankind's fallen state, is not only at hand, but can be accelerated and assisted by human agents who have become illuminated through hermeticism and even operative magic, and become active participants in the divine plan. If Hermeticism was concerned with understanding the universe as a total whole, it was equally concerned with understanding the connections between things in the universe, from the loftiest heights of divinity all the way down to the lowest strata of animals, vegetables, and minerals. If the universe is a divine unity, the embodied mind of God, then everything in it must not only be connected but also carry its own internal logic. Hermeticism thus assumes that nature is a language of similarities and connections, and that all aspects of the universe may be sorted based on their essences. It is the study of connections, resemblances, and analogies between aspects of nature. In this, it is much closer to how artists think than modern scientists, as it is concerned with the metaphorical resonances of images and objects within the natural world, 
and the way in which their contemplation affects the human soul. The Christian Kabbalah allowed a system for categorizing all of these correspondences, providing a kind of calculus of metaphors. D instead sought the real Kabbalah of nature, that is, how to read nature itself as an open book, rather than relying on the intermediate symbol set of Hebrew, alchemy, and astrology. D followed the then popular conception that wisdom proceeded from two books, not just the book of scripture, the Bible, but the book of nature, which hermeticism and magic would not only allow him to read, but also repair, restoring existence to the pre-fall state. This fall was not even exclusively Christian. For pagans, the fall represented the descent of mankind from the golden age that they sought to reverse within the bounds of their own theology. Yet if hermeticism represents the height of Renaissance intellectual culture, how can we reconcile its lofty philosophical holism with the superstition, sorcery, and simply inaccurate pre-scientific observations that it has inevitably come to us packaged in? Take, for instance, some of the more ludicrous passages of folk magic contained in Agrippa, including one in which the reader is told that a scorpion sting can be cured by rubbing a mouse on it. The 20th century philosopher Ken Wilbur offers an elegant tool for disentangling this mess that he calls the pre-trans fallacy. For Wilbur, the pre-rational, magical, and mythical modes of thinking, exemplified by folk magical practices and literalist or fundamentalist interpretations of religion, should rightfully be considered vestiges of the evolution of human consciousness. They are less developed modes of thinking and discourse than the rational, scientific, modern, and postmodern modes of consciousness to come. For Wilbur, postmodernism also represents a crisis point, a flatland that dead ends in cultural relativism. He proposes that we are currently approaching more integral or holistic cultural modes, for examples of which Wilbur points to the Eastern Enlightenment traditions of Advaita Vedanta and Vajrayana Buddhism that he encountered during his own spiritual training, which emerged in parallel with the Hermetic tradition, albeit in Asia, and contain broadly analogous models of the universe that are equally entangled with the pre-rational shamanism of the cultures they emerged from. Within the frameworks of these traditions and the states of consciousness they engender, students realize a deep sense of holism, unity, and interconnectedness with everything in the universe, suggesting perhaps a real Kabbalah in the form of a student's naturally emerging understanding of connectivity. Reality is freshly understood as a divine play of mind or consciousness, and a sense of divine pride emerges from the student's understanding his or her nature, not only as an expression of the cosmos, but, in a sense, containing the entire cosmos. For Wilbur, this post-rational state may have commonalities with the pre-rational state of magical thinking, as in both modes the individuals perceive themselves as having mystical agency on the broader reality. In pre-rational magical thinking, this agency comes in the form of superstitious ritual, omens, contact with spirits, astrology, hexes, and the inaccurate and pseudoscientific assumptions of magic. In post-rational holism, this agency comes from the enlightenment of understanding that the awakened individual is both innately divine and divinely connected to the entirety of existence. The pre-trans fallacy occurs when individuals operating in the rational, scientific stages of intellectual development look at post-rational enlightenment states 
and mistake them for the pre-rational, magical states. To the hard-headed rationalist or materialist, both states represent mumbo-jumbo, or New Age thinking, which is accurate in the case of pre-rational magical thinking, but inaccurate in the case of post-rational enlightenment states, which incorporate rational, logical, scientific, and even postmodern thought within a wider holism. This new holism reveals an understanding of first the interconnected unity of all existence, and finally, at least for Wilbur, a Vajrayana Buddhist, the essential nature of everything as emptiness, or sunyata, or, in the Kabbalah, Ein Sof. While pre-rational magic and shamanism posit methods of establishing non-local connections between phenomenon via sympathetic or contagious ritual, rational science rejects this utterly, seeing magical thinking as a confusion of causation and correlation. However, post-rational enlightenment states re-establish a universal network of non-local connections, reminding us that there is no need for ritualistic creation of connection, because everything in the universe is already connected, as in the Vedic metaphor of Indra's net. Vajrayana Buddhism, which for Wilbur at least represents the high register of post-rational consciousness, goes further by stating that existence is nothing but connection, called pratitya samutpada, or dependent arising, and that phenomena do not possess essences in and of themselves outside of their relations to other phenomena. D would describe a similar model of universal interconnectedness in his early text, Prapadumata Aphoristica. While Wilbur is primarily concerned with Eastern mysticism, Hermeticism represents, or can represent, an equally post-rationally enlightened tradition that is directly sourced within Western culture. While Hinduism and Buddhism have their own terminology for enlightenment, Trithemius and Agrippa spoke of a mens adeptus, adept mind, an alchemist who had attained to the philosopher's stone of divine awareness, whose soul had been purified, who was able to understand all of existence non-dually, and who was therefore able to receive and comprehend the doings of God and his angels, and the secrets of the universe, past, present, and future. Such a state was not easily accomplished, nor would all who seek it necessarily find it. Yet the rare few who did attain could shape the course of history. History might, in fact, depend on advancement by such individuals. D certainly exemplifies this rare individual. His early works, including the Prapadumata Aphoristica, the Monas Hieroglyphica, and his preface to Euclid's Elements, distill the pristine essence of hermetic holism, universal interconnection, and the enlightened outlook of the men's adeptus. From here, he proceeded to achieving many of the stated goals of the hermetic tradition, including the first steps towards the establishment of the New Jerusalem by a prompting English colonization of North America, and during the angelic conversations, recovering the Prisca Theologia, the original language, and the real Kabbalah. Yet even with D, the boundaries were not so clear-cut. Both D and his scryer Kelly would occasionally support themselves by various uses of folk magic, including using occult methods to search for buried treasure, or promising to alchemically turn lead into gold. During the scrying sessions, the angels themselves made no secret of their disdain for pre-rational grimoire magic, blatantly calling it either fraudulent or demonic. At other times, however, the angels instructed Dee and Kelly in the production of folk cures and the art of operative alchemy. Yet even in these instances, the attitude of the angels 
is that humanity's fumbling attempts at magic are crude parodies of the innate modes of action of God and the angels themselves. If scholars today are confused about the precise nature of magic in the early modern period, they are in good company, writes Deborah Harkness. It is clear that Dee and his contemporaries were not entirely sure either, and were more comfortable with an identity as a natural philosopher than they were with that of a magician. Yet if the methods were often confused, Dee spent much of his time with the angels asking for clarification on what he had already learned, for instance. The goal was clear. The great work that Dee had set out to fulfill was nothing short of apocalyptic, in the true sense, not of destruction, but of the restitution of nature itself, the enlightenment through light of all of creation. It was the alchemical change of lead, the fallen state of mankind, to gold, the spiritual purity of man before the fall, the enlightened and divine mankind symbolized by Adam Kadmon, as described in the Kabbalah of Rabbi Isaac Luria, a contemporary of D. For the Hermetic initiate, then, as now, this is not mere metaphor, but daily reality. D had only to walk through the streets of London to see drunkenness, madness, poverty, misery, and during Mary's reign, the religiously sanctioned torture of heretics and the totalitarian domination of the country by a brutish and very unenlightened church regime. Similarly, the hermetic philosopher of our modern world need only walk through the streets of their own town to see more modern versions of the same old human misery. The dreamer, the magician, the artist of any time and place carries within them a burning vision, a longing, and a conviction that humanity can embrace the divine side of its nature instead of the animal, to move up the great chain instead of down. Yet the potential of humanity, considered side by side with mankind as it currently is, becomes almost impossible to reconcile. And so begins the great quest, the great work of alchemy, the work of redeeming at least the individual alchemist, so that they may spread their enlightenment to others, that in one halcyon instant to come, all of existence may be redeemed. Okay, hope you really enjoyed that. That is from the book John D. and the Empire of Angels by me, Jason Louvre. You can find it on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or IndieBound, or you can go to the mini site that I made for it, johnd007.com. All right, I will see you next time. Hang in there.